If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew, chapter 1. I cannot begin to express my appreciation to the family of Mary Hicks for their very thoughtful gift to our church of the instruments that are behind me. Most of you know that um, even though I've been a, your pastor now for seven years, most of my ministry has been related to music in some way, music or education. And um, God allowed me the privilege of starting a handbell choir at the Meadow Heights Baptist Church in Collinsville a number of years ago. And it's a tremendous joy for us. It became a tremendous ministry, nursing homes and the community and schools we started a whole group of children that began working with hand chimes first to learn how to ring until they graduated up to the bells. And uh, it's something that will continue to give a gift to the Lord and to our church for many, many years to come. If you're part of Mary's family and you're here today, would you just, just stand so we can recognize those of you that are here with Mary today? Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate. I don't normally make announcements during this time, but because of the way the morning has gone, I've not had a chance to. On this insert in your bulletin, you will notice a webcast that is going to be happening on Saturday, January the 16th, called The Deeper Life. Daniel Henderson is one of those kind of men that if he had his way, you would never know his name. He is one of the most humble prayer warriors I have ever met. And yet he is a man that God has blessed and is sounding a prophetic call to the church across America in a, in a way that when you hear him, you go, doesn't sound very prophetic to me. <laughs> That's like he's up on the top of Mount Moriah to me. But um, just in his own wonderful, gentle way, calling us to a deeper life, a deeper knowledge of God, so that we in turn can be godly people in the midst of a world that is coming, it's just exponentially more ungodly all the time. And this is the first time he finally agreed to let um, to do a, a, a webcast, a simulcast, and uh, because they are so amazingly money-hungry, for an entire church to do this webcast costs the grand total of $99. And if you know anything about simulcasts, they tend to run anywhere from $1,000 to $2,500 for a simulcast. But he says, it's not about money. I just want people to be able to learn how to have a deeper walk with God so that in turn we can have a deeper impact on a lost world. So if you can block off that Saturday, when we get to stay to the church Sunday in a few weeks, the last Sunday in January, we'll all be together here for a combined service, and I'll be talking about 2016 and what that year is going to entail. But each month, there will be an opportunity for you to be involved in some type of an event that will help deepen your life. In February, it's going to be a men's event. Um, Pastor Johnny Hunt from First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia, is going to be doing a men's event for men and boys. That will be in February. In March, of course, we have Easter. And each month, there will be things that you can participate in to help you grow deeper in your spiritual life, in addition to small groups and stuff like that. But I wanted to get this in your hands before, because obviously January 31st, we'd be too late now, wouldn't we? So um, mark your calendar now, and of course, it'll cost you nothing except your time, and I believe that you'll be blessed by it. Matthew Chapter 1. As I said a minute ago, one of the things that you know about Sharon and me is that no matter what role we play, we are at heart musicians. Trained in music, met each other in music school, 
um, went to seminary to study music before God got involved with it and decided to move me out of music into something else. But um, God has again and again and again brought us back to music in various and sundry ways in our ministry life. And one of the things that amazes me about God's creation of music is the fact that, for those of you that are not musicians, I hope this, this makes sense to you, is that the musical scale that we use in the Western world basically is comprised of 12 notes. That includes all the sharps and flats. There are 12 notes in a scale, and then it repeats itself an octave higher. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, with all the sharps and flats in between. 12 pitches, and yet everything from Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer to a Beethoven Symphony uses those same 12 notes. The silliest, most hickish song you've ever... No, no, not me, Miss Mary Hicks. Other kind of hickish. Uh, that you've ever heard to the most glorious, uplifting, is all built around those same 12 notes. And one of the reasons why a year ago or so we decided that we would wed together our Bible teaching ministry on Sunday mornings with the pulpit ministry in our worship times was because I wanted us as a church family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to begin to see that in some ways like music, every book of the Bible has its own specific melody its own specific tune that is played, but all of it based around the same foundational principle, which is the gospel. The good news of God's love and his plan to redeem humanity to himself through the sacrificial death of his son, and then the walk that comes out of that relationship. And so by studying a book in Bible study that then we follow by behind it and continue to study the same book, not usually the same passage, but the same book, it gives you a chance to really sink your teeth deep into that book and hear these tunes come out. And Matthew is no exception. We're going to spend the next 12 weeks. We already started last week. Pastor Darrell preached a wonderful sermon. Uh, I hope you had a chance to thank him. I heard so many wonderful things about his message last week. He's preaching that message right now over in the beacon, even as I'm here with you. Well, we're going to spend the next 12 weeks in the first 16, no, 13 chapters of Matthew. And then we're going to take a break and come back in about a year and a half and finish it up Easter of 2017, Lord willing. But in this time together, I want you, and I'm almost just going to drive it home to you, I want you to see that Matthew takes the 12 notes, as it were, the scale of the gospel, and paints a picture for us. And it spoke, it's spoken the most clearly at the very end of the book in words that Jesus himself said. Without turning there, most of you, if you don't have it memorized, that you know it. In Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, Jesus says these words. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I will be with you even unto the end of the age or the end of the world. All authority, all nations, all allegiance. Matthew is going to paint for us a picture. And you say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. How can we have different stories about the same guy? Well, just like you can have different paintings of the same person. Mark paints his own unique picture. Luke paints his picture. Matthew paints his. John paints his. Paul, in his talking about Jesus, paints another picture in his letters to the churches. They all are pictures of the same person, but different perspectives on that story. And you're going to see that in Matthew's gospel, and I'm going to try, I may not point out to you every single week, but you're going to see that Matthew will again and again and again come back to the fact that Jesus has all authority. 
He is the only ultimate authority to whom we can turn. And that authority is not just over his people. That authority is over all nations, all people, all of creation. He has all authority over all nations. And because of that, he demands all of our allegiance. It's not Jesus and something else. Jesus and someone else. He demands all of our allegiance. So, just like I did in the beacon last week, I want you to say it with me. Okay, here I'm going to say it's going to be all, all authority, all nations, all allegiance. Now let's all say it together. All authority to all nations, all allegiance. All right? And he starts that principle in the verse, first verse of the first chapter where you now have your Bibles open. Let's read the verses together. Matthew chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 17. This is the, interesting in the whole, it says the historical record. But if you have a footnote in your Bible, the word actually is the genesis so just like we had the genesis of all things just a few months ago, we now have the genesis of the new covenant. The historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered, fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. Then David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Ammon, Ammon fathered Josiah, and Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Then after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel, Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel fathered Abiud, Abiud fathered Eliakim, Eliakim fathered Azor, Azor fathered Zadok, Zadok fathered Akim, Akim fathered Eliud, Eliud fathered Eleazar, Eleazar fathered Mathan, Mathan fathered Jacob, and Jacob, listen to this, how this changes, Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts to hear your word as it speaks to us today. If we never have a chance to see each other again face-to-face -face in this room, we ask that we would leave here knowing that Jesus Christ has all authority over all creation and demands all of our allegiance to him. For the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of us who have put our trust in him, we ask these things in his name. Amen. Wow, don't you just love genealogy? Are any of you involved in... Tracing your family genealogy? Are any of you amateur genealogists? Okay, there's one. There's one. Okay, a few of you. Yeah, a few of you like doing genealogy work. But if you don't really like genealogical work, it is a dry and it is at times a long and discouraging trip at times. 
It's a lot easier now in the Internet age than it was back in the day when you had to go to the local records office or go to the county courthouse and search and search and search and search and try to find what you could, and birth certificates and names were misspelled, and it was just a tremendous thing. But for the Jewish people, genealogies are phenomenally important. And guess what? We're adopted Jews, in case you forgot. We have been grafted in. And so genealogies suddenly need to become very important to us. And Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes the first 17 chapters of his biography of Jesus to tell us his birthright through his adopted father, Joseph. Now, I'm going to take just a second, just so nobody gets, gets misunderstanding. We live in a world that treats biology a lot differently than the early world did. Okay? What I mean by that is, we forget sometimes, I think we forget, not that they forgot, we forget that when a child is adopted into a family, not only does that child gain a father and mother, that child also gains all of their parents' lines all the way back as far as you can trace them. They are legally, even if not biologically, they are legally the children of that adoptive father and mother. If there's any, if there's any inheritance to be claimed, they get full claim, just like a full-born child. See, we forget that because we think it's all about biology, DNA testing and all this kind of stuff. So the fact that this is Joseph's line, the fact that Joseph is the one that we learned about in Bible study this morning that gave Jesus his name, by naming him, he claimed him as his own son. He then, Jesus, legally becomes a part of Joseph's line. And that is phenomenally important. And Matthew sets the stage for us right here in verse 1. So we're going to camp here. I'm going to pull in other things from the passage. We're mainly going to be talking about these four titles that he has in verse 1. He actually gives one name, Matthew does, and three titles. And the first one is the most important, and that is his name. His name is Jesus. Now, what does Jesus mean? Jesus means the Savior. That really is just the Greek version of the Hebrew word Yeshua, which sounds a lot like Joshua, because it's the same name. Just repoint the Hebrew, instead of it being Jeshua, it's Joshua. Very common name. Joshua means God is salvation, or God saves. And so, Jesus, that name carries with it this idea of him being Savior. Now, by the time Jesus came along, in, first century, in the first century Jewish world, this idea of the Savior was all about saving them from their enemies, their physical enemies. The Romans, in this case. Prior to that, others that had oppressed them. And they had this idea that this Savior was going to come. But really, that was not their history. Right down in the margin somewhere on a piece of paper, Psalm 130. Because in Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8, listen to what the, the, uh, the psalmist says to the children of Israel. This is Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord, and with him is redemption in abundance, and he will redeem Israel from all its sins. So you see, all the way back in the Old Testament, the understanding was that the true Savior, Jesus the Savior, the one that would come and free his people, was not going to be from oppression, it was going to be from their sins. You say the name Joshua, and immediately people hark back to that great hero, that one that followed Moses, that took the children of Israel into the promised land and led them to get settled there, this great commander, this great leader. And yes, Jesus is a great commander and a great leader. And he is interested in rescuing us and saving us from our enemies, even our human enemies, but not first and foremost. 
First and foremost, his claim, his work is saving us from our sins. And you see it right here in the genealogy. In this genealogy, we have a list of 14 kings. About half of them were godly men, righteous men. Some of them were were famously righteous. David, Hezekiah, Josiah. But even among these godly men, they were sinners and they made some mistakes. We all know about David's. We won't linger on that. Jehoshaphat got into contracts and alliances with godless nations and it hurt the people. They were punished for it as a result. Hezekiah, out of his pride, showed the enemies, well, he didn't know they were enemies at the time, but his guests that had come from another country, all of the beautiful treasures that they had. And that same people came back later and ransacked all of that and took it all away with them. And Uzziah, that wonderful one in Isaiah 6, is the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. King Uzziah was so proud that he actually took upon himself the role of priest and went into the temple to offer sacrifice. And God struck him with leprosy because of his taking a role that was not his. So even these godly kings were not always wise men. They didn't always make wise choices. But also the other half of these kings were just downright evil people. I mean, they were just horrible. I mean, look at example for at, 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 at Ahaz. Ahaz brought in the worship of Baal, had his own children sacrificed to Baal. Rehoboam was the one that led the northern tribes away and set up a false altar in the northern part of the kingdom so they would not go to Jerusalem. And Manasseh, goodness knows, I'm going to start about Manasseh. Manasseh, the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel, was worse than all of the Canaanite kings that they had driven out. He was so evil. He murdered innocent people for no reason. He was absolutely uncontrollable. Those are the forebears of your, of your Savior. To remind us that Jesus didn't come to brag on his forefathers. He came to save them. He came to rescue them. Look at the four women in the story. Well, five count Mary, but we'll leave Mary for another week. Look at the four women. Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law, who when Judah would not let her have one of his other sons for a husband, when Judah's son died and she by rights should be, have been married to the next son so that they could bear children for the dead brother. She dressed up as a temple prostitute and Judah slept with her and gave birth to his own grandchildren. Or were they his I guess I, I'm my own grandpa. I'm not sure exactly what he was. I guess they were his kids, but. Tamar. Rahab. She didn't dress up like anything. She was a prostitute. In Jericho who put her trust in God rather than in the gods of the Canaanites, and God rescued her and saved her. Ruth, well, she was a pretty sweet girl. She didn't really have a whole lot bad about her except for one thing, her lineage. She was a Moabite. The people that had been cursed by God would never be allowed to enter the temple for ten generations. Yet she was a Moabite. And then we know about, don't you love the way Matthew describes her? He doesn't call her Bathsheba. He calls her the wife of Uriah. The Hittite. And I don't want to go too far into this because I don't want to speculate about Scripture. Scripture doesn't speak. We need to tread very, very carefully. But there's at least a certain amount of thought about the fact that if you were 
a married woman and you knew that the king's palace was up the hill from your house and you knew that the king walked on the parapet of his home every day, would you take off your clothes and take a bath on the roof of your house? Unless maybe, just maybe, you had another motive in mind. But whether she did or didn't, she became part of that lineage and she most likely was a Hittite herself. So, in this lineage, we see all of these different influences that Jesus came to say, I've come to save my people from their sins. Over those 14 generations in exile, they had lost a line of kings. There was no king on the throne. And when they went back home again, there was an empty temple because there was no Ark of the Covenant, and there was an empty throne because there was no king. Well, not a king in the line of David. Oh, they had a king. His name was Herod. So Jesus is born to save his people from their sins. The second thing is his title. The first of his three titles is Christ. Christ. Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name, by the way. I think all of you know that. Christ is his title. The word in the Hebrew is Messiah. The one who had been anointed by God. The one whom God would anoint and choose to do God's work. Kings were anointed. Priests were anointed. From time to time, prophets were anointed. Again, The people in Jesus' day thought that this anointed one was going to come and rescue them and save them from all of their enemies. He was going to be chosen by God. So when Jesus came and he was anointed by God's Spirit, they thought, oh, finally, our hero is here. But the problem is, we don't get to pick what work Jesus does. They thought, oh, well, if he's going to be the Christ, he'll do A, B, C, D, E for us. And when Jesus came and said, that's not what my father sent me to do, because Jesus was anointed a king, the king of all kings of the line of David. He was anointed to be the priest, the one to stand between us and God. He was anointed to be the prophet, the one to give God's message and the word of good news to the people that needed to hear it. And he was more than that. I mean, he was anointed to be our Sabbath in the sense of he brings peace to us. He is the temple because he is the place where God and man meet in one. He is the judge given permission by God. But see, the problem is None of those things were on the Israelites, the Jewish people's list of things that the Messiah was supposed to do. And let me just put a little note in here for just a second. This is not really the main emphasis or application, but I just want to just throw this out for you to think about. How often do we do the same thing? How often do we set our expectations of what Christ should do for us? And we forget it's not our place to choose what God has anointed Christ to do in our lives. We want to bring us joy and bring us a good job and give us healthy kids and give us this kind of thing and that kind of thing and the other kind of thing. And God says, oh, I have something so much bigger and better for you than that. So much better for you. But we want a Messiah. We want a Christ that fits our definitions. The third thing, he is the son of David. Son of David. There is that right to the throne. The hope for Israel. Nine times in this gospel, Matthew uses that title for Jesus. Jesus, son of David. There's only one other person called son of David, and you studied about it this morning in your Bible study time. In the latter part of this chapter, when the angel comes to to Joseph, and he says, Joseph, son of David. That's the only other person ever called son of David in Matthew's gospel. All the other times, it is always about Jesus. He was the long-promised heir. Do you remember back in the second Psalm where it says these words, the kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. There's that Christ figure. 
Let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have consecrated my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Ask of me. I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like pottery. So this Jesus is not just the Savior. He is not just the anointed one, the set-apart one. He also is the hope for Israel because not only was the son of David supposed to bring peace and a sense of hope, he also was to bring healing. There's a great line in uh, one of Tolkien's books. I think it's The Return of the King. It says about Aragorn. It says, the hands of a king are the hands of a healer. Now, unless you say, well, now, Pastor, where did you get the idea that the Son of David was supposed to be a healer? Well, let me ask you. Every time sick people cried out to Jesus, what did they call him? Son of David, have mercy on me. Canaanite woman, son of David, have mercy on me. My child is sick. Two blind men, son of David, have mercy on us. And so the understanding was that the son of David, this king that was going to come in line from David, was going to not only bring peace to them, he also was going to bring healing to them as a nation and as individuals. And what's so funny about that is you always see the same pattern. It's the outsiders that call out to him. It's the outsiders that believe in him. The insiders doubt. Could this really be the Christ? Could this really be the son of David? And the religious authorities, they just reject him out of hand. Oh, he's a mocker. He's a blasphemer. Deserves to die. You ever notice it still works that way a lot of times? It's the people that you were, the last ones that you would think to understand who Jesus is that are the ones that are given that gift of insight and understanding to know who Jesus truly is. The son of David offers his strength to those who are weak, to those who are wounded. He offers the gift of hope to those who are yearning in their hearts. And so like them, we today can cry out, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. Help me in my time of weakness. Lastly, Jesus is also called the son of Abraham. Now this I find really interesting. A lot of commentators will tell you, you know, there's two genealogies in the New Testament, two genealogies of Jesus. One is in Matthew, one is in the Gospel of Luke. Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. I mean, right back to Adam himself, the very first human on the planet. Matthew's genealogy just goes back as far as Abraham. So the idea is that, well, Luke's was more for Gentiles. Understand that, that Jesus' lineage predates Abraham, and, and, and Matthew's lineage is more for the Jewish people. But there's one thing they forget in that passage when they say that and that idea. What was Abraham before he was a Jew? Abraham wasn't born a Jew. In fact, there were no such thing as Jews when Abraham was born. Abraham was a pagan Canaanite idol worshiper when God came to him and made a covenant with him. Now, he became the father of the Jewish people, but when God called him, he wasn't Jewish. And this is where the all nations part of Matthew's tune comes into play. Looking at those ladies, those women in this genealogy. Why in the world would you list women in a genealogy? I know, ladies, I'm talking about in those days. Today you're very important. Thank you very much. No hymnals being thrown at me, please. But normally in, in the Old Testament genealogies, you notice very rarely are women ever mentioned unless there's a very specific reason why. And you know what? I think the same thing's true with Matthew. There's a specific reason why three of those four women were not Jewish. And so even though all the men came to the line of David, already Gentile blood was being brought into Jesus' line to remind us that he is not just 
the son of David. He is the son of Abraham, the one that predates Moses, the one that predates the law, the one that predates the Jewish people. What did God say to Abraham? Come on, we just studied Genesis here a few weeks ago. I will make of you many nations, and you will be a blessing to all people. And so Jesus now fulfills that covenant because he comes not just to the biological offspring of Abraham, but to all of those who by faith in Christ are now part of that family. So what is the significance of these titles for us? Well, I've kind of alluded to it already. One thing we have to remember in the Western church is we were outsiders. I don't think a single one of you in the room, if one of you is, tell me afterwards, if one of you are Jewish by nationality and have come to Christ out of Judaism, then you're the exception. You're an insider. Christ was part of you, and you are part of him. But most of us are Gentiles. The Hebrew word is we are goyim, unclean ones. And yet God in his love and his mercy grafted us in to the stock of Jesse, grafted us in through our father Abraham and makes us into children of Abraham. And we should never forget to thank him for doing that. He did not have to do that for us. He did not have to do that for us, but he did. Because he had to fulfill his promise to Abraham. All nations will be blessed. German, Dutch, French, British, Irish, Scandinavian, whatever else you may be. All of us have been blessed because of what Christ has done. That's the significance of these titles. Remember, we were outsiders. And it begs the question. It literally screams at us the question, how do we feel about outsiders? How do we treat people who don't look like us and act like us and talk like us and dress like us and smell like us? How do we treat them? I was recently invited to join an organization that I have longed to be a part of for a long, long time. And, and um, I wondered maybe one of the reasons I was invited into because they, they dropped the bar <laughs> and let me in. I'm not sure if that's the case or not. But you know, m- many of you, maybe you were looking to get a particular job or get into a certain university or become part of a certain club or organization. And once you're in that club, you can do one of two things. You either can be so humbled that they would accept you that you're then excited about telling other people, hey, if they took me, they'll take you too. You ought to apply. Or think, oh, well, I guess, <clears throat> I, guess I must be something special. You know, I guess I'm better off than I thought I was. And so we start looking down on those people that aren't part of our organization and we begin kind of snubbing our noses at I hope we're like the first when it comes to the gospel. Beloved, I hope that when we see people who don't look like us and act like us and talk like us and smell like us, that we'll remember that we, in our filth and our lostness, were accepted by Christ, and we need to be champions of their salvation. We need to be the first ones to go to them and say, I know exactly where you are because I used to be there too. And, I, and God accepted me, and he'll accept you too. He forgave me. He'll forgive you too. He adopted me. He'll adopt you too. He redeemed me. He'll redeem you too. He saved me when I could not save myself. And He will save you too. How do we deal with those that are outside? I hope, I pray, that this next year we will again begin to think about what it means to be 
centered on inviting people, not just inviting people to church, inviting people to Sunday school, inviting people to Bible study, inviting people to team kit, inviting people to Christmas tree walks, but inviting people to Jesus. Inviting people to come and see what we have learned and what we have seen and what we have experienced. May we be like Andrew. Really? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? What did he say? Come and see. Come and see. That's what these titles mean. And they demand our response. Jesus is our Savior. He brings salvation. And so we accept salvation, acknowledging the fact that we cannot save ourselves. I've been a believer a whole lot of years, like a lot of you, over 40 years. And when I was just a kid, not a kid kid, but a kid, I would talk to people and they say, well, you know, I figure I'm going to do the best I can. If it's not good enough for God, that's just his problem. So, <laughs> I remember saying, I was about 13, I said to a man who's older than my dad, I said, oh, no, sir, you don't understand if he doesn't think you're good enough, it's not his problem. It's your problem. <laughs> the world's not changed. People still believe, you know what? If I'm better than most people I know, and as good as the rest of them, and if God won't accept me that way, then you know what? I don't want him. Okay. But the Bible tells us that we are lost. We are on a path. We are out in the middle of the jungle. We are out in the middle of the wilderness. We are wandering around. We cannot find our way back. We have no bullets left in our gun. We have no, no arrows left in our sheath. And we are trying to find our way home, and we will not find it. And someone calls out and says, hey, come this way. And I can guarantee you, if you were out there in the middle of the African Pori, and you realize you only had one bullet left in your gun, and you were about four miles away from your car, you would love to have somebody say, hey, I got a car right over the next rise. You want to ride back to camp with me? But that's exactly where we are without Christ. We are lost. And Christ says, I've come to save you. We have to acknowledge the fact that we cannot save ourselves. He is Jesus, the Savior. He is Christ, the anointed one. He is the one that restores to us what we have lost. He is the one that fulfills the places where we are missing. He is the one that becomes for us our peace and our hope for the future. He is our Christ. He is the one that God has anointed and appointed to do that particular task. He is the son of David. He is the healer. So when we are broken, when we are sick, when we are weak, when we are tired, when we are hurting, when we are lonely, when we are desolate, when we feel like there is no one who cares, we cry out, son of David, have mercy on me. And he comes with mercy and with healing and gives us and he is the son of Abraham who welcomes all and invites us to go out on his behalf and welcome all to come to him. This is who Jesus is this Christmas. Not just a cute little baby in a manger. Not just an idyllic scene with Joseph and Mary. And, and I always get scolded a little bit because we have the shepherds and the wise men there at the same time and we know they didn't come at the same time. I know that. But you know, it's just such a cute, pretty little picture. This baby. Those nails in his manger, became the nails to his cross. He gave his life for us. And out of thankfulness to him, we accept his salvation. We allow him to fill those places that are empty. We let him be our healer, and we recognize that we are now his ambassadors, pleading with people, be reconciled to God. This is your Savior. To God Let's pray together. Father,
we thank you for 17 verses worth of names, most of which are almost unpronounceable. And yet in that, we see and we recognize the fact that there is a truth about who Jesus is for us as we are in the midst of this Christmas season, as we are looking forward to his coming, as we are looking forward to his next coming, when he will come in power and in might. But even then, to do what you've appointed to do, not what we want him to do. And today, as we sit in this room together, as we prepare to sing a song of response and think about how we are going to live this Christmas in light of who this baby really truly is, fully God, fully man, born to die so that we could live, I pray that Jesus Christ, Son of David, the Son of Abraham, will take on full and complete meaning in each of our hearts today and in the days to come. For it's in Jesus' name that we ask it.